back to the Temple of Geek podcast. Today I'm talking with someone I've interviewed several times during the film strikes last year, and now we finally have time to actually sit down together. My guest today is SAG-AFTRA National Executive Director and Chief Negotiator, Duncan Crabtree, Ireland. Hey, hey Lacey, it's so good to be here. Although it is funny, ironically, we're sitting down together, but we're not in the same room. And I think most of the times before, even though we didn't have any time, we were usually in the same place out on the picket line or wherever. But it's but it's great to be here with you. What have you been up to since the strike ended? Well, we had this ratification campaign that started immediately when the strike ended, and that lasted until December 5th when our members ratified the agreement with a approximately 80% yes vote. So from the end of the strike until then, I basically was 100% on meeting with members, talking about the contract. I did a kind of a, a roadshow around the country, went to Albuquerque, Chicago, New York, Atlanta, et cetera, to do meetings, informational meetings about the contract. But since all of that wrapped up, really been working on our interactive media agreement, our CES activities. Uh, I did take a week off between Christmas and New Year's. And and we have several other contracts right now getting ready to start negotiations, a next round of negotiations on our music agreement uh, with the major record labels. And all of these agreements, of course, AI is presenting itself as a really important issue that we have to address. And so that's that's a big focus right now. Perfect segue to the first topic that I wanted to talk about. The agreement between SAG-AFTRA and Replica Studios. Tell us about it. I'm sure you've been yes. telling everyone about it every day for a month, but tell us about it. Not even a month, because we just announced it at CES the on, ninth, I want right? to say, the 8th of eighth or 9th of January. I mean, it was the 9th. We're really excited about it. Replica Studios is an AI company that's focused on making uh, digital voice replicas of actors for use specifically in video games. And as you may know, Um, or your listeners may know, we are currently in the midst of negotiations with all the major video game publishers and companies about uh, our contract with them, which is includes AI as one of the major issues. It's not the only issue, but it is a a key issue in that negotiation. So this company we've been talking to for a while, a couple of years now, actually, and they have presented, you know, the idea of really wanting to do this type of work in an ethical way that supports human talent and union members. And so we negotiated a contract with them, which in every respect either meets or exceeds the standards that we were able to bargain with the major studios during the TV theatrical strike. So I view this as sort of the next evolutionary step in how we address AI provisions for especially for voice performers. Among the things that this contract contains that I think are really great ads include, number one, there's a specific provision regarding safe storage. So detailed provisions about how to maintain digital replicas and and, and you know the various biometric data that have been used to create those types of replicas, the exact methods by which those will be stored to protect them from any kind of hacking or other unauthorized access. There's a specific time limitation on the use of those replicas. So once you create a replica and it's used for something like, you know, it's it's going to be on file and potentially used for a foundational model of an AI system or for some, some something more specific, there's a time limit, a one-year time limit on that after which a fresh consent has to be obtained. Now, I want to note this is all laid on top of all the informed consent compensation provisions and things like that that we already have bargained for in the TV theatrical world. There's also a specific limitation on the use of any of this uh, voice replication for training of any generative AI system. 
So that, again, requires specific consent for any use for training purposes and also compensation for that. And, you know, when you take all of these ads on top of the existing sort of channel of protections, I think it really puts our members in a place where they can feel confident that if they want to work with replica studios and create a digital voice replica, that that voice replica is going to only be used in ways that they're okay with, that it's going to be, the data is going to be stored in a secure, safe environment, that it won't be used to train Gen AI systems uh, for purposes of creating synthetic voices without their permission and consent and compensation, and that all the other aspects of informed consent and fair compensation that we've come to expect over the past month since we negotiated them in TV theatrical are there as well. So you know, I don't think it's the end of the road for negotiation of AI contract terms, but I do think it's the next step down the road in terms of building those protections. And I'm pretty proud of it. And I think Replica, to their credit, stepped up and really accepted the importance of a lot of these key pieces. And I hope that it will serve as a role model um, and possibly even a little bit of a template for the video game companies. Because here's a company whose whole premise is based on the use of AI technology, and they find it to be workable and acceptable to have these kinds of provisions protecting performers. I see no reason why the video game companies shouldn't do that uh, equally. Thanks. What kind of feedback do performers who've worked with Replica have about it and their experience with the AI models that Replica generates? Well, it's really just starting out in terms of union performers. So I think that remains to be seen because their engagement with union talent has really been pending the disagreement being reached because obviously prior to that, there was not a union contract in place. And so our members shouldn't have been, and as far as I know, weren't working with Replica Studios to create these models. But we've had quite extensive engagement with their team on the union staff side. And so I expect our members to have a good experience working with them, just based on how that negotiation process and the process of working with them on building this contract uh, went. Obviously, we'll be monitoring that. And if there's any concerns along those lines, then we'll address them. But um, but so far, um, I haven't heard anything that's going to make me nervous about what the experience is going to be like for performers working with them. What's the plan for monitoring it? How is it going to be monitored? Well, we have a specific team that was responsible for negotiating this contract. They also are involved with our interactive media negotiations, the video game negotiations. So we have a staff team that's going to be monitoring it really with any kind of recording, not only in the AI world, but in the world in general. There's always a question about, is there some kind of unauthorized use going on? Are you able to actually trust the people to limit themselves to the things they've contractually agreed to? So we have a whole contract enforcement infrastructure that's built up around that, and that will be equally applied here. For the AI world, we're also working on, it hasn't been deployed yet, but we've been working with a couple of different AI companies to develop AI-based tools to help us identify misuse or unauthorized use of our performers' work, even when AI tools have been used to modify the look or the sound of the work so that it's harder to identify using more traditional methods. And so I'm eager to see those efforts come to fruition because I think that will also help us make sure that all of those contract terms are being fully complied with. Cool. Can you share any more details about secure storage? That comes well, up a lot. Even, <laughs> even though I'm a technophile and you know I, I'm very interested in all of these things and try to educate myself, I wouldn't consider myself you know, the preeminent expert on, on the technical aspects of safe storage. But 
you know, in our TV theatrical negotiations, what we really relied on as far as safe storage goes is the fact that the companies have legal liability and responsibility for any misuse of a digital replica or the underlying, you know, biometric data used to create a digital replica. So it's sort of a consequences method of enforcement rather than a, a sort of list of detailed requirements. In this agreement, and folks who are interested can take a look at it themselves. It's it's publicly available on our website. Go to the website and search for Replica Studios and you'll find the agreement. There's a list of criteria that have to be complied with in terms of that storage and making sure that, uh, you know, the sort of industry best practices with respect to encryption and other aspects of storage are are in place for any kind of replica or replica data that's maintained. Okay, so you mentioned uh, kind of a legal ramifications angle. Yeah. Where are, I know we've, there's, this is such a broad question, I'm going to have to try and make it more concise, but like, what's the status of AI legislation with regard to entertainment tech? Well, that is a great question. And I think it depends on where you are <laughs> at the moment, because the EU, I think, is a little bit ahead of most other places in this area. But I'm actually more familiar in depth with what's going on in the United States. We have two bills pending in Congress. One uh, is in the Senate called the No Fakes Act. And the other one that's in the House of Representatives is called the No AI Frauds Act. And they're not exactly identical, but they have the same purpose. And the purpose is to establish a federal right in image, likeness, voice, name, performance, so that performers and others aren't totally dependent on copyright as the only thing that they can use to try and enforce protection of their image and likeness. Because copyright works well for a specific work that's been created, although typically artists don't always own the copyright. In fact, for performers, you almost never own the copyright. But what it doesn't work well for is some unauthorized party, not just copying a creative work that's been made, but actually taking, let's say, a still photograph or even some video and then using that to create a deep fake or something like that, where the output doesn't appear to be similar to the original input. In that scenario, copyright is very problematic. And what we need is a right that says if someone creates something that looks like you and that sounds like you, that you have the right to say yes or no to that and that they can't do it without your consent. And that's what this legislation is meant to do with certain exceptions for First Amendment purposes, of course. And, you know, Lacey, this became very, you know, this is something I've intellectually been really involved with for years. We've been fighting deep fake pornography, for example, as it affects our members for many years. But during the ratification campaign on this contract, someone went out and created a deep fake of me and had it basically arguing against the contract ratification. And I think you know me well enough to know, like the last thing I would be doing is out there arguing against the ratification of this contract that I was the chief negotiator of, and which I firmly and deeply believe is absolutely in the best interest of our members. And yet here I was seeing my face and my voice saying things that were completely wrong and false about this contract. And so what I would just say to everybody is, it's one thing to know it intellectually, you know, and as a lawyer and as a union person, I've been fighting it for years. It's another thing to see it actually done with your own face and voice and watch yourself sitting there saying something that's anathema to you. And so it was, you know, even though I'm not glad that they did it, it certainly was a learning experience for me to see what it feels like to have that done to you. And it just makes me redouble my commitment personally to making sure that everybody should have the right to stop that. 
And by the way, you know, it was funny because some people then went on to say, oh, well, this just shows how inadequate this contract would be because here it is, Duncan's being deep faked and whatever. But of course, the person who did that wasn't a signatory to any contract. Like I didn't have any contractual relationship with them. There was no contractual right. If that person had been a signatory to our current version of this contract that's now been ratified, I would have had a contractual right to stop them. But I didn't, of course, because they weren't and aren't a signatory to that contract. And also, there's no federal right that gives me the right to tell someone you can't deepfake me and use my voice and face to deliver a misleading message to a whole bunch of people who might actually believe it. That's one of the many things we need to fix. So that's going on in the legislative level. We have some some bills pending, particularly interesting one in California, which would invalidate any consent that's been a, been secured for someone's image or likeness or voice to be used in an AI system unless that consent was obtained under the terms of a collective bargaining agreement or with individual legal advice. And so, you know, the idea behind that is basically we think there's been a lot of overreaching unfair consents that people have signed not knowing the ramifications and that those should be invalidated and fresh consent should be obtained from people who have you know, reasonable protection of either a lawyer or a union. So that's still pending in the California legislature. We'll see if that gets enacted. I certainly hope so. But there's going to be a mosaic of protections. Some of them come out of public policy, federal law, you know, maybe EU law, state law, and then some of it coming out of things like collective bargaining and also out of just education of our members and the public so that people know not to put themselves in a position where they've lost the right to control the use of their image or likeness or voice. Sorry, that was a really long answer. I apologize for that. That's why it's a podcast. It's a conversation. (laughs) The point about consent and overreaching consent or coercion, like coercive consent, that came up a lot when the agreement, the SAG AMPTP, agreement first came out. There were so many conversations that I saw, but as I'm not in the union, I wasn't in the town halls digging into this. So the broad question or issue that came up a lot was, are studios and productions just going to basically force performers to say yes to scans? What protections are there? How do we keep that from happening? Where did that conversation go? Where did it end up? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's a very interesting question because on the one hand, uh, obviously, we want performers to have the freedom to say no to any of these, you know, digital uses, replication, AI tools, if they want to. On the other hand, we have to recognize that there are projects where it will be essential for the project that they cast people who are willing to allow digital tools to be used. I mean, if we take it out of the AI sphere for a second... You know, imagine a performer who doesn't want any CGI used on them who's going to be cast in Avatar, uh, you know, the Navi Avatar, not The Last Airbender, right? I mean, that would be fundamentally problematic, right? Because there's not a way for them to achieve the result that they want to achieve in that film without using CGI to do it. And so, so that is a challenge that has to be addressed. I think where we sort of landed on this is if we find companies that are just making it a blanket rule that everyone has to agree to digital replication scans when there's no articulated reason for it or need for it, then we're going to pursue that as an enforcement matter. But where there are companies that are saying, and again, I'll use Avatar, the way of water as an example, if, if, if Avatar, the way of water is posting a breakdown that says we're casting for Navi 
which is a, I forget, is it 16 foot tall? I don't know, something like that. 16 foot tall blue alien, you know, very tall. Let's just say very tall because your listeners will know the answer to this and then they will barrage you and me with what is wrong with him? Why does he think <laughs> that's 16? Don't me and Duncan about how tall the Navi it's are. It's obviously 18 feet. What is wrong with him? He's a moron. Uh, anyway, however tall a Navi is, it's very tall that we know and it's blue and it's not something that you can just do with practical effects. So if there's a... You know, if there's a breakdown posted that says, you know, we're casting for this type of thing and we, you know, you have to be willing to, you know, to be scanned for digital replication because that's how we're going to create the the effects or whatever, then that's, that's, that is something that they can do. And the performer does have a right of consent because they can say, I'm not willing to do that and therefore I'm not going to pursue this, this opportunity or I'm going to turn down this job if I'm not willing to do that. And I recognize it's not exactly the same, but it is. It does have aspects that are similar to things like there are, have long been projects where, let's say you get cast in a movie and this movie is going to shoot in Australia and they say to you, you're going to have to relocate to Australia for a year to shoot this movie. You are either willing to do that or you're not. And if you aren't willing to do that, then either they're going to relocate the movie for you or someone else is going to get cast. So that's never been viewed as coercion. That's just part of the negotiation process of booking a job. Or likewise, there are projects where nudity is an essential requirement of the project. And that is permitted under our collective bargaining agreements and has been for decades. And if a performer isn't willing to do the nudity that's required for the project, then they may have a choice of either declining the project or saying yes to the project under those terms. So, so I think the real issue is where blanket requirements for things like that are put in place without any real need for it. That's where we're going to pursue issues with it, but where there is a legitimate basis for the company wanting to um, say that we want to cast people who are willing to do this kind of digital replication, then then I think that's going to be uh, the performer's choice, whether they want to do it or not. Came to mind when you were answering that was I actually saw a lot about central casting requiring essentially a release to, uh, I could get the exact language, but essentially, oh, I authorize central casting to photograph, videotape, or use any electro- any other electronic method of recording my image, likeness, appearance, voice, or actions, collectively recordings to be used at central casting's discretion in any medium, including without limitation company-related publications and websites. I grant central casting the unrestricted right to make, copyright, use, reuse, or publish recordings in which I may be included in whole or part and waive any right to inspect and approve the finished medium. It's like a couple paragraphs of text right. like this that right. you probably saw a lot of conversation around. And that's not a production company. That's central casting. That's right. even higher up the pipeline. That was a few months ago, and they made a couple of statements about it. But that's um, a scenario that really came to mind as something that could be kind of intrinsically exploitative and that needed to be addressed. What happened with that? We've been working on that with central casting. So that, and actually, as far as I know, you're the only person who's recently asked us about this. So you're getting a, a temple of geek scoop here because we have been actively addressing that issue with central casting. And uh, I expect us to have some kind of resolution to that in the very near future. Clearly it's unacceptable the way it has been framed you know, there may be certain circumstances where it's okay for Central to ask our members who are part of their system to agree to certain types of use of, you know, casting photographs or things like that that have been taken as part of that process. But those are not the expansive types of uses that are in that release that they had put out. 
And so we are actively um, addressing that. And I expect that to be resolved very soon. That's good to hear. I saw I saw a lot about that when it first came out. But when I was looking into it, I couldn't find anything more recent than like August. Yeah, it's been it's been a um, protracted process of trying to get that where it needs to be. But I'm optimistic that one way or another, it's going to be there shortly. Cool. All right. I have one more question about AI. It's like a one and a half question before we talk about influencer agreement. What's the most important thing you think performers should know about the replica agreement? And tied up in that is what would you say to those who say they're feeling betrayed by that agreement or more broadly, the unions, the new agreements, AI provisions and guardrails? I know we had there was an 80 percent vote for ratification, but it's still people are still very vocal about it. I'm sure you see the comments on SAG's posts. Yeah, I mean, I, I've definitely seen some of them. I, I'm sure I haven't seen all of them. I guess what I would look, say is a few, a few look, things. Don't read the comments. <laughs> Cardinal rule of self-care on the yeah, internet. Yeah, I never, I never do. I don't, yeah. I, I guess a few things. Number one, I would say there are some people who feel that we should somehow ban AI or stop AI from happening. I understand that there are people who feel that way. I respect that they have that opinion. I think they're wrong. They're incorrect strategically. They may not be wrong morally or whatever else, but from a strategic perspective, and this is what our board has decided and what our negotiating committees have all decided as well as we've had this discussion with each one of them. It is strategically an error to take the position that we should just ban AI and go out and try to advocate for stopping AI because by doing that, we give up the ability to simultaneously influence how AI is implemented and developed. Because you can't, on the one hand, say there must be no AI, and on the other hand say, but if there is AI, here's like 18 specific rules about how it can be implemented because you lose all credibility if you try to take both of those positions at once because then your ban AI position is obviously just a, it's just a, a figurehead position. It's just something for, for, press purposes or something because anyone you're negotiating with sees, well, you've got these 18 specific things that you want done. So really that's what we're talking about. And so, so that's been our focus. Our focus has been on channeling the implementation of AI, which I think everyone, or at least the vast majority of people realize is going to happen, channeling it in the right direction so that the way it's implemented is the best possible implementation for our members. So to the extent that the complaints are, these agreements don't ban AI, hear the complaints, understand the legitimacy of that position in people's minds, but that's not the view that this union is taking and that's not the strategy we're pursuing. So that pretty much, that's that conversation for me. Now, if somebody has specific issues with what's in the agreement, then that's a different thing. And, you know, for example, in the TV theatrical, one of the things that people criticized was why isn't there language that says actors are human beings? And I answered that a lot during the info sessions and whatever, Bottom line being that in the way our contract is structured, that would be a nice thing to say, but it wouldn't actually create any enforceable beneficial result. And that's why we didn't focus on it. There will be other contracts of ours where we probably will negotiate that kind of language in and hopefully people will be happy about that. Um, as far as Replica Studios goes, I think the main the main source of criticism at first was that we didn't release the full text of the agreement the moment we announced that the agreement existed. And, and so I understand that. And I think going forward, we're going to try to be able to post full texts of agreements immediately if we can. 
Um, you know, sometimes there's reasons why you can't do that. In this case, we did post the full text of that agreement within 24 hours. And I think a lot of the people who are most upset about this, once we posted the full text of the agreement, they were able to read it, their concern was really reduced. Because when you read the full text of the agreement, you find there's a whole lot in that agreement to really like. There's a whole lot. If you accept the premise that AI is going to happen and what we're doing is making sure it's implemented in a way that's beneficial to performers, there's a lot in the Replica Studios agreement that is very beneficial for performers. And a lot of the biggest concerns that performers have articulated are directly addressed in those agreements. So I guess the bottom line, Lacey, is you can't please everyone ever. <laughs> Certainly not in a union like this one or any other union that has a large number of members and a lot of constituencies to address. AI is super scary. I get that. You know, sometimes a certain level of fear can be very healthy because it keeps us safe. And a certain level of fear beyond that becomes paralyzing, and that's actually not beneficial. So we need to, through member education and outreach and keeping everyone in the loop and informed, we need to manage that fear level so it's at the healthy level, not at the paralyzing level. And number three, those agreements we've reached, the TV theatrical agreement, the Replica Studios agreement, what we're working on now in video games, the music contracts, television animation that's coming up, all of these agreements are going to build on what we've already accomplished. So the AI protections will be evolutionary. And if you just take a step back and look at what outside objective analysts say about these agreements, they're almost unanimous in saying these are extraordinary accomplishments in limiting how these companies use AI. They, these types of limitations don't exist in any other industry in this country or in the world, frankly. And I've been told by a lot of other unions, we are so happy that you've done this because this is a uh, template that we can follow to try and create real limitations in our own industry, industries that have nothing to do with entertainment. So that's sort of where I land on it. And you know, we're constantly educating ourselves and trying to figure out a way to improve upon these provisions as it relates to AI, but just, you know, just banning AI or taking the position that AI should just not happen and it should be stopped. It's just a luxury we don't have if we want to actually protect actors from um, abusive uses of AI. I'm glad you mentioned other unions because I wanted to ask you, what's your read on kind of the state of the American labor movement right now? I mean, we just saw the headline about Anne Hathaway leaving the Vanity Fair shoot to support the Condé Nast strike. There's been a ton of other strikes, but concurrently, 24,000 people just lost their tech jobs. So given your extreme level of involvement in one of the world's largest unions, I'm curious for your perspective. Yeah, no, I mean, I think obviously there's there are economic dislocations that happen all the time um, due to the way industry is structured in this country. But I just saw a new report that the AFL-CIO put out based on new Bureau of Labor Statistics info from the Department of Labor that says over the last year, there are almost 200,000 new unionized workers in this country due to organizing efforts and things that have happened over the last year. Um, in addition to all those contract standards. And I think, I guess the things that I would say are, number one, the tech workers who are getting laid off would be a heck of a lot better off if they had unions representing them than they are going it alone. Whether, you know, could those unions save their jobs? Maybe or maybe not. But you know what those unions can do is help them negotiate fair severance packages, help them find ways to get um, additional training to move into new fields that might be related to what they were doing before. There's a lot that unions do 
to help make sure that workers are treated fairly in every aspect of employment, even, even in the difficult scenario where there are job losses happening. But the truth is that unionized workforces enjoy better salaries, more contractual protections, better benefits. There's The world is replete with studies that show this. And that workers are less exploited and feel happier in their workplace because they have a voice. And so that's, I think, reflected in this, you know, what I view as the continuation of the hot labor summer. You know, we had this hot labor summer and it's continuing on and rightly so because workers continue to realize that they can join together and stand up for themselves. And employers have so much power especially in these big companies and in industries where all of the work is dominated by big companies, but workers can get together and equalize that power imbalance. And the best way to do that is through unions. And I think unions have gotten a bad rap in the past. I mean, not saying the unions are always perfect. Unions have done bad things. Unions have made mistakes. Yes, all of that is true. But ultimately, the union is the workers. The workers control the union through their elections. You know, nobody gets nobody in these corporations amongst the workers gets to vote on who the CEO is, but every one of them gets to vote on who their union president is or who their union board members are. And the union is them. And I think I know you were out on our picket lines a lot this summer, and I'm sure you saw it for yourself, which is this union, SAG After in particular, this is a union that's driven by our members. We are here to do what our members need us to do. And our members are passionate about what this union does and they care about it. And that is exactly, in my view, the recipe for building strength and putting yourself in a position to make sure that employers respect the people that you represent. Thank you. I appreciate you. I appreciate that soapbox as it's one I share. Bias disclosure. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so <laughs> and thank you for that. <laughs> All right, for my last topic, I um, wanted to talk about influencers and the the influencer agreement. So, if if the listener is familiar with me and my coverage at all, they'll be a little bit familiar with this. But fans and influencers were a vocal and often non-union support like cohort during the strikes last year. And something I didn't know before the strike was that SAG-AFTRA doesn't just represent actors. There's also the influencer agreement. And you said something that I wrote down like five months ago that I wanted to follow up and dig into a little bit. Um, it was when we were at the the big Disney uh, picket line. And um, you said the reality is that the same lack of respect that our members feel from these studios and streamers is present with respect to the work that content creators and influencers do I'm very eager to see us expand our footprint in that world so that we can help provide benefits and protections to content creators just like everybody else. So I wanted to dig into how our influencers disrespected by studios and streamers and has the footprint of the influencer agreement started expanding? What can they do to reduce the risk of being exploited by giant billion dollar corporations that utilize their labor often for free, as I noticed quite a bit during the strikes? That is such a great question. <clears throat> and let me just say, because I can never say it enough, how much uh, it mattered to us, the support that we got from the creator and influencer community. And I hope that the folks in the community felt that during the strike. I tried to do as much as I could to specifically acknowledge that, you know, and uh, in my own in my own ways, <laughs> went on TikTok, made my own videos <laughs> to thank people for for what they had done. And in fact, sent out letters at the end of the strike to as many of the creators and influencers as I could 
who had you know gone on record supporting us and really stood up for us um, just to thank them for that. We do have an influencer agreement. Um, and maybe, you know, maybe in our next round of bargaining with the commercials folks, we'll try to change that to an influencer slash creator agreement or something like that. So we can acknowledge that term better, but it's really focused on, at the moment, it's focused on work that creators do with brands. So where there's a brand deal in place or a sponsored content scenario, this agreement allows for that to be done under a union contract and why that's important. The number one reason why that would be important for, for creators is it provides access to health insurance. And also I realize many creators on the, you know, if the younger generation may not yet be as focused on retirement as they should be, but let me just tell you, you know, if you do some reading, you'll see the best time to start focusing on retirement is when you are early in your career, because little things you do early on over time, build up into bigger things that can really benefit you when you need it. So our contracts provide for access to health insurance and to retirement benefits. These are contracts that are, you know, developing and evolving as well, kind of like our AI provisions. And in fact, I was just looking at a, at a list of some of our prominent creator and influencer members, because I think over time, what we're going to want to do is engage with them to gain better ideas about how we can improve upon these contracts in successive rounds. We do have an influencer team uh, at SAG-AFTRA who are specifically focused on the needs and concerns of creators and influencers. And uh, Shane Griffin, I'd like to shout out as one of the leaders of that team. She's, I think, well known to a number of creators and influencers as, as a important point of contact for us. Although I myself um, spend a good amount of my time thinking about how we can engage with the community better and um, and build upon that. So I consider us to be sort of uh, in the early stages of figuring out how best to serve the creator and influencer community. But I'm really excited that we do have the influencer agreement. There's a pathway to membership for, for influencers and creators who want to be part of the union. And my goal is over the coming years to be in a position where, you know, basically everyone who considers themselves a professional creator or influencer wants to be part of SAG-AFTRA because they know that we're here to, help defend and protect them and make sure that they're treated fairly in their dealings with major brands, studios, whomever, you know. Something interesting and random that I learned recently about influencers and like child influencers specifically is that apparently they're not subject to the Coogan law. So if you're a minor and you're an influencer and your parents are profiting off of it, I'd have to dig in and confirm that. But apparently you don't really have financial protection from financial exploitation as a child because influencing is, is so new. <laughs> well, I'm look, making a note of that because I'm going to look into, into it as well. and double check. Yeah, and if I'm wrong, don't tweet at me. Duncan will tell me. Internet. Someone from SAG <laughs> will tell me if I'm wrong. This is a podcast, not a, a law class. Okay. Well, to the extent that it's not, I mean, I think we can easily, I'm sure you and I would both agree that the same pressures that can be put on child actors or, you know, I mean, like there's no reason why creators and influencers who are minors shouldn't have the same protections as everybody else. And, uh, you know, frankly, it's unfortunate any of those protections are needed because what they really reflect is the fact that sometimes there are parents who don't look out for the best interests of their kids and that it can be true in any type of work environment. But 
yeah, I mean, if the Coogan law doesn't apply there, we, and for those who might not know, the Coogan law is a law that says that if you are a minor and you work in certain types of industries, such as acting or entertainment industry, that a percentage of your income has to be put into a blocked trust account so that when you turn 18, there's actually money there. And the reason for this is it's named after Jackie Coogan. And the reason for this is because uh, you know, he was a, a prime example of this, although there have been many examples where young performers basically worked, their parents took all of the money, then they turned 18 and they had nothing. And it was like, I've been working since I was six years old and I have nothing. <laughs> and their and their parents just, for whatever reason, didn't protect them. So that's what the law is meant to address. And I see no reason why it wouldn't be equally applicable to creators. Yeah, social media isn't as regulated as certain things. One of the things that I was really excited to see in the new TV and theatrical agreement was the expanded or maybe the first requirement for intimacy coordinators on sets. And I had a really great talk. Uh, it wasn't an interview, uh, but I had a great talk with Michelle Hurd from the Sexual Harassment Subcommittee. And if you're a Trekkie, Michelle plays Rafi on Star Trek Picard. But I was I was really excited to see that as as I've been noticing that, and including on social media, it's it's been trending quite a bit, but that role has been growing and developing. And I've heard that actually it would have been nice, essentially, from, from the negotiating committee members that like it would have been nice to even have a more broad requirement, but there aren't enough ICs. So I don't know. I just kind of wanted to talk about intimacy coordination as a growing field and I think it's really important work. So I wanted to shout out that that was in there and just talk about it for a second. Yeah. You know, it's funny because AI has been such a, you know, an omnipresent topic that I think a lot of other really important and exciting gains and achievements in this contract haven't gotten as much attention as they should have or would have, frankly, in a world where AI wasn't so front and center. And intimacy coordinators is absolutely one of them. We've been working on this for a decade and one of the key problems with getting a contractual requirement for intimacy coordinators is what, Lacey, you exactly said, which was there just weren't enough qualified intimacy coordinators. And the studios and streamers were unwilling to commit to requiring them if they felt like there weren't enough of them because then they felt like they'd get in trouble making their productions when they couldn't find someone who was qualified. So what our strategy and approach to that was, we went and we accredited a bunch of intimacy coordinator training programs. We established accreditation standards and guidelines with input from the IC community as well as from our members. Then we also have a registry of qualified intimacy coordinators that we maintain. So as long as the IC has has you know met the necessary training and experience requirements, they can be listed on our registry. And with both of those pieces, which you know I say them and they sound easy, but that was years of work to get all of that in place. With both of those pieces in place, then this time around we were able to achieve a requirement that for scenes involving nudity or simulated sex, that there would be the engagement of an intimacy coordinator. And for any other kind of intimate scene, an actor in that scene can request an IC and uh, they'll be provided if possible. And that there's a prohibition on any kind of retaliation against an actor for requesting an IC. So I think these are really important pieces. Michelle Hurd is one of the people. There's a number of our member leaders who've been super committed to making this happen. And and rightly so, because intimacy coordinators are our best way to, number one, reduce the occurrence of sexual harassment and abuse on set. Number two, to make sure that people are 
who are expected as part of their job to engage in things that you would never have to do in really any other occupation, that they can be made comfortable. And frankly, you know, there's a lot of support for this from other parts of the creative community, like directors, for example, and others, because they realize that when talent feels comfortable doing these scenes, the quality of the performance ends up being better. So this is really a win-win for everybody. And I'm super excited we were able to get this into the contract in this round. Yeah, that's really cool. Similar to the way a stunt scene or a stunt requires a coordinator, intimacy coordinators support scenes of nudity and simulated sex. And they're the big underscoring thing that I hear from that community is our job is to prevent sexual harassment. That's why it's under the sexual harassment subcommittee. And they also also do, you know, directing, guiding, advising, providing barriers, things like that. If it's if you're on social media, look up intimacy coordinators. There are a lot of really great educational resources. Yeah, I mean, intimacy coordinators are so important. And I think for all the reasons that you said, and the, the other thing I would say is, you know, they have a experience and education in how to, for lack of a better term, choreograph intimate scenes in ways that both look realistic, but also protect the personal space and comfort zone of the actors involved. And so it's really one of the reasons why they're so important is they're independent of the director and the production, right? So they are somebody that the actors can talk to, can really be honest and straightforward about what concerns them, what's okay with them. And then they can help bring that all together so that you get the best possible result in the performance without pushing past people's boundaries. And, you know, that's, that is ideal because obviously when you're in, uh, you know, an intimate situation with someone who is fundamentally a stranger, you know, possibly surrounded by a bunch of crew. I mean, it's, it's not, sorry, it's not a scenario that really lends itself to feeling comfortable and supported. And I think intimacy coordinators make a huge, huge difference there, both from the sexual harassment prevention perspective and also from the perspective of making this a comfortable and supportive environment for actors so that they can deliver their best performance. Yeah, absolutely. There's an under undercurrent of like communication, consent, agency that just seems to be really amazing. Okay, two final quick bonus questions. The strike was long and arduous and it was a lot, but did you have a favorite moment from the picket lines? Oh my gosh, that's so hard to answer. <clears throat> pick, pick one. I'm gonna assume there's like a top ten, but you could just <laughs> you just reach in there and grab oh one. Oh my gosh. I mean, there were so many. I mean, I guess some of them that really stand out at me. You know, we've had we had several times when different specific groups of our members were out in force. So there was a dancers one that was amazing. There was a Latino community one, which was also so amazing. Uh, there was the day when we had everyone converge on Universal. And I, I guess that was special in a certain sense because the entire strike, the entire 118 days of the strike, we really couldn't pick it at Universal because of the you know actions they had taken to block off the sidewalks and to make it impossible for the kinds of numbers that were turning out for our picket lines to go there. The Writers Guild was able to do it because their numbers were a bit smaller, but there was one day where we decided to just converge on Universal and uh, and it 
pretty much overflowed <laughs> the sidewalks and ended up resulting in Lancashire being shut down. And I apologize to anyone who was impacted in traffic as a result of that. But this was really important because it wasn't okay that Universal somehow exempted themselves from um, from the picket lines. Um, and, you know, we had filed unfair labor practice charges about that, which ultimately we withdrew as part of the, the strike resolution. But I think that day was certainly, you know, it was memorable. I think, you know, I had the chance to go out to picket lines and, and rallies in other cities as well, such as New York. I was out on the picket lines in New York many times. I think one memorable moment there was when the governor of the state of New York showed up at our picket line unexpectedly and uh, made a little speech and we had a chance to talk. I thought that was, um, that was a standout day. And um, there, were just, there were just so many, but ultimately the passion of our members just really came through. And, you know, being out there on the picket lines with the writers guild as well, uh, the combination of writers and actors is almost unstoppable with the words and then the <laughs> ability to deliver them. It's, uh, it, was, it was very inspiring for me. So whenever I got tired or felt like, you know, this, this was grueling, which it was, um, all I had to do was go out on the picket lines uh, and it really just reinvigorated me. And in fact, there were a number of days when we were negotiating where before negotiations would start, I would go out to the picket line first thing in the morning, spend just maybe half hour or an hour out on the picket line with the members and then head into negotiations. And uh, I always found that to be really um, fortifying and inspiring. Yeah, I imagine that would be really energizing. Okay, last question. That was the days you were there, Lacey. <laughs> those were the best. Oh, so many of those days. Those were good days. I think my I, I have this memory, which I don't know if it's accurate or not, of us doing some kind of a brief interview while the while our member who was dressed up as the Mandalorian was uh, was standing off to the side. So it just somehow somehow resonated. Yeah, that was the Disney day. And I think they I think you I think one of the local news channels interviewed you with them. <laughs> I think that's because right. there was like a second Mando and then like another Star Wars cosplayer. Oh, uh, one more answer to that, which yeah. I think was the first time you and I ever met was at Comic-Con. Was it a Comic-Con? It was <laughs> yes, in San Diego. I was in, during full, the... I was in full Loki cosplay. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and as I recall, you asked me a question at that press conference about the influencers uh, or the creators. And I think that was our first interaction. And then you had made ribbons. Am I remembering this correctly? Yeah. Union strong and WJ strong and SAG after strong ribbons, which I was enamored of. So yeah, there were a lot of special moments during this process for sure. Yeah. The, the support from cosplayers and the type of fans that go to comic cons was really strong. And I talked about it with Michelle Hurd as well. It's one of my favorite interviews ever. It was like eight minutes long. It's way too long for social media, but it was so good. <laughs> <laughs> and we were so stoked to get to be able to do it. Oh, we're she like, is so Star Trek like, now. <laughs> she's amazing. so passionate in her speaking. I just love listening to her talk because she just has a way of just, you know, delivering a message. Yes. Okay. This is deep, random Duncan lore. So my dad's actually a lawyer and I have like seven lawyers in my family. And my first job was actually like in the family law firm. Um, so I was curious, I was snooping on your LinkedIn uh, and I saw you were a deputy DA before yes. you went to SAG and you've been at SAG since like 2000. Yes. How did, how did that transition happen? Like, did you always want to work in entertainment law or like, what was the path? No, not at all. Actually, when I was in law school, I was, my two major areas of interest were labor law and criminal law. And oh yeah, this would be labor law, not entertainment law. Continue. <laughs> well, I mean, you could look at it either way. I mean, basically... I 
put out some feelers in the labor side, but I got a job opportunity with the LADA's office. So I went down that road, relocated to LA, took that job, and was a criminal prosecutor for a couple of years. And to be honest with you, you know, some people are cut out for that job long term. For me, it got to be a little depressing after a while doing, uh, I did a bunch of trials. I did 23 jury trials when I was a criminal prosecutor, plus a, uh, hundreds and hundreds of other kinds of hearings and stuff. And uh, it just got to be a little depressing. And so I started thinking about where else I might go. And I happened to see a job listing for SAG at the time before the merger. And I thought to myself, labor union, interestingly enough, I'm sure everybody else in LA would have said entertainment, but I said labor union. I thought, oh, and you know, this seems like an interesting sort of angle on labor. So I'll apply for that. And I applied for the job, came in, it was, um, you know, it was located here in this building where I am right now. And I interviewed with some of the, the team and the legal team at that point. And uh, it sounded like someplace I might be interested in working. And so they offered me the job. I took it. And uh, yeah, that was November of 2000. And I've been here ever since. That's As I like cool. to say, all of my bosses either you know left or retired. And I just gradually took their positions until I ended up here as the national executive director. <laughs> You've been you've been in this you've been in this since like 2021, right? Right. Yeah, I started in this role in uh, I think it was June of 2021. That is what your LinkedIn says. Oh, good. I'm glad <laughs> to know that. I'm glad to know that my LinkedIn and I are <laughs> on the same page. <laughs> I'm, I'm. I usually will like because because I, I my last job was like super corporate and people would always tease me because I instead of looking someone up on the company directory, I would look at their LinkedIn. Just like it. You know, I got to get better about that because uh, people will message me on LinkedIn and I, I maybe go on there like once a month or something. And then you still haven't really accepted my connection request, Duncan. I'm starting. Well, that's to- probably why <laughs> is honestly because I, I, I'm really bad at LinkedIn, but I will I will go fix that right now. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to expand my network, man. <laughs> any any other parting shots or thoughts that you want to leave us with? 